Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. Start out by just saying that I was uh, going back and looking over some of the, or I should say listening to some of the older episodes on YouTube and realized that there were some technical issues with some of those. There was even one episode where there was video but no audio and one where there was a like a seven minutes of blank audio at the beginning. So I did go through, just a heads up, I went through all of those um, on YouTube, all the files on YouTube, as well as double-checking the episodes uh, through the podcast hub. Everything's fixed and corrected now. So if you feel like going back and listening to some older episodes uh, that seemed to be available but weren't, please revisit them. They're, uh, they're there now, 100%. So... Last week's episode, we talked about the movie Jennifer with Ida Lupino, and I had mentioned that the original short story it was based on, Jennifer, uh, by Virginia Myers, uh, had been published in Cosmopolitan magazine way back in February 1949. And I couldn't find a copy of it online anywhere uh, to read, although afterwards I, I, I realized, I wonder if Cosmo has a digital archive like some magazines do, but be that as it may. Loving to have something vintage in my hands, preferring to read physical media, physical copies of uh, literature. I tracked down the uh, specific issue on eBay, ordered it, and it arrived. And I read it last night, so I just wanted to quick talk about uh, how the story, the original story, compares to the adaptation. So, just a quick refresher: uh, the film Jennifer uh, follows the character of Agnes Langley, played by Ida Lupino. Um, She takes on the position of a caretaker for a large uh, estate, which is up for sale, uh, whose prior caretaker, the Jennifer of the title, uh, just seemingly disappeared, vanished. Uh, As the uh, movie progresses, uh, Lupino uh, begins suspicious that something may have happened of a malicious nature to Jennifer. She finds uh, what to her seem to be clues around the house, things left behind that suggest to her that uh, perhaps Jennifer met with foul play, perhaps Jennifer was involved in blackmail, who knows? Now this all happens uh, in the context of Lupino's character uh, having recently been unwell. She doesn't really specify what her her problem was, but when she gets this job uh, and the, uh, the person who hires her uh, who's part of the family that owns the estate, uh, notices that she's had uh, four months bef- between jobs. She just mentions that she hadn't been well lately. And she's a very sensitive person. You know, you can tell through her behavior. And as, you know, as events continue on, she also uh, has a lot of encounters, interactions with a local businessman uh, named Jim Hollis, who kind of helps helps the family that owns the uh, property, uh, helps look after it for them, not, not in a caretaker uh fashion, but, you know, is helping them to sell it and checks in on uh, Agnes, Ida Lupino's character, to see how she's doing and begins to have an attraction towards her. And this character is presented as possibly, could he be uh, someone who's involved with the alleged disappearance of Jennifer? Could he, you know, just be someone who has uh, a romantic interest um, in in Ida Lupino's character? And the original short story is a uh, stripped-down version of that. You know, it's told in first-person point of view from 
the character of that point of view of the character of Agnes, who in the story is Agnes Gray, uh, not Langley. But uh, a big change that they made in adapting it to a film is the addition of this character of Jim Hollis, this character played by Howard Duff, who is not in the original short story at all. The short story is, as most short stories are, short. And it just kind of really kind of gets you into the mindset of Agnes as she uh, takes on this job of character. You can really just, through a, um, a roller coaster ride of thoughts, uh, just begins to go from A to B to K and then the Z to start thinking the most you know suspicious things about uh, what what could have happened to, to Jennifer. Um, another big addition that they made in the movie uh, was the uh, the character of Oren, who is a uh, the, we talked about in last week's episode. He's supposed to be a teenager, late teenager, but he's played by an actor Robert Nichols in his thirties, and he works at the local grocery store and also has suspicions about what happened to Jennifer. Uh, that character also is not in the original short story. There is a brief scene where, uh, in, in the story where Jennifer goes to the grocery store and talks to the workers there, and there's a similar scene in the movie, but that's really it. In fact, the only characters other than um, Jennifer herself and those, those grocery workers who are just briefly uh, mentioned in the story is the... Um, is the person who hires her, uh, the member of the family that runs the estate, and that's it. There, there really aren't any other characters. Now, in the in the short story, they do get a little bit more into, a slightly bit more specifically into why she's unwell, why the character of Agnes is unwell uh, prior to coming to this um, uh, position that she has. Uh, but the biggest change, I'd say, is really the ending. Um, you know, the ending of the film is ambiguous, and obviously I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it is, there is some ambiguity to uh, uh, the resolution, um, whereas in the short story there is a, a definite answer to uh, the question of what happened to Jennifer, but that itself isn't so much what I, I'm referring to as the big change the big difference between the short story in the and the film what the really big difference is again not so much the the specific uh answer as to what happened to jennifer but how agnes reacts to it when agnes in the short story finds out what happened to jennifer her reaction to that is totally different than the agnes of the film it's something that the agnes of the film would uh it's a it's a response that the agnes of the film would not have had so they really flesh it out, obviously, in the movie. You had to, obviously. They're, 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 it's, a, it's just really kind of stripped down the short story to just the kind of the thought processes of the character of Agnes as she begins to just kind of, you know, really suspect uh, uh, through various, what to her seem to be clues, um, suspect that something, something bad happened to Jennifer. I got to be honest, it's not a very well-written short story. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't like a jerk to, to attack the author, the authoress, but it really isn't. I it's it's very I, I it's one of the lesser pieces of writing quality wise um, that I've checked out in some time. It does an okay job of kind of getting into the mindset of Agnes from a mentally uh, fragile, kind of sensitive uh, uh, point of view, um, but just the. Uh, the the writing itself the the writing of the dialogue of her mind and, and and her thoughts it's just very unrealistic it doesn't it doesn't come across like the way any anybody actually thinks uh or or, or speaks i should say because that's what it really is a lot of a lot of the short story is 
her her talking to herself. It's it's her thoughts, and and it just comes across instead of coming across like natural conversation or conversation uh, one would have even when you are thinking to yourself. It just comes across like yeah, bad writing. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, it does have, of course, the what's really appealing about it. It, it, it does have the the basic premise, the kernel of everything, which is you know this really great uh, classic. Uh, I guess you could call it trope of 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 uh, suspense stories, uh, which is you know, you come to a house or a building or a location or wherever, and the the occupant who was there before you has just mysteriously disappeared. Um, you know that's that's kind of like a winning formula that, uh, and you can really you know take that in a lot of different directions. You know, it's kind of like the the, the winning formula in a lot of suspense and horror films of you know being in an isolated location and surrounded by uh, overwhelming force, which is a very simple way of stating the plot line of everything from Night of the Living Dead to Assault and Precinct 13 to the Humphrey Bogart World War II movie Sahara. You know, there are certain, you know, very elemental storylines. You know, you really get, you strip it down to what the basic story uh, is that uh, just are are proven time and again to really be effective if you take it in, in uh, the right direction. And, you know, Jennifer, both the short story as well as the movie, has that. Just the movie is it really is a much more successful telling of it. Uh, they did, um, they did a lot of good work in terms of, you know, expanding upon that short story while also improving it. Again, if you get a chance, try to, you know, you really become a diehard fan of Jennifer, like I am, you know, see if you can track down a copy of that magazine or check Cosmo's website. They might have a digital archive there. Uh, but yeah, I, I read it last night. Didn't take too long and definitely worth checking out. Like I said, if you, if you are uh, a fan of the film, so moving on, a lot of, very unfortunately, a lot of passings uh, of people in the film industry in this, just this last week, just since last week's episode. Probably one of the, the biggest ones was Jim Brown, uh, you know, obviously a legendary football player, titan of the field. Uh, nine seasons, all with the Cle- Cleveland Browns, uh, voted MVP uh, three times, won that award three times. Uh, Rookie of the year, took, his, uh, took the team to, the, um, to win the NFL championship game and uh, obviously had a really successful film career uh, starting out with his uh, first movie though the 1964 western Rio Conchos and it was his second feature film which would uh, not only become one of his most famous but also be the one that brought it in a way brought an end to his football career that was the classic movie The Dirty Dozen and uh, the film's shooting went uh, over schedule and uh, the Cleveland Browns owner Art Modell uh, basically threatened Brown, Jim Brown, with fines for uh, showing up late to a uh, training camp if he was, you know, if he was going to be late, and that basically forced a situation where Brown was like, "I'm done. I'm done playing." Um, not a smart move on uh, Mr. Modell's part, I don't believe. I don't know. Uh, you know, far be it for me to judge. I haven't uh, owned too many football teams, but you know, you got a player on your team who. Uh, is uh, setting records, who's considered, even then, at that time, even that close to his career, uh, one of the greatest football players ever. Uh, you know, like I said, helped them win a championship game, MVP multiple times. Uh, you know, and you're worried about him showing up at the training camp. It's not even the actual season. It's just training camp. I get it. You don't want to set a precedent. You don't want this to become a regular thing. But maybe you just kind of let that play out a little bit more. See if you can get the movie done before you before you put him in that situation where he's like, I'm out. <laughs> but, uh, hey, it gave us uh, it gave us probably um, uh, an acceleration of his film career that we wouldn't have had otherwise. 
because uh, just some of the movies he appeared in over the years. Ice Station Zebra, you know, the classic Alistair McLean adaptation. Uh, 100 Rifles, which was uh, a Western, which was kind of controversial at the time because of uh, Brown's love scenes with uh, Raquel Welch. Um, uh, Dark of the Sun, the, the Rod Taylor mercenary movie. Um, he was in uh, you know, various entries in the uh, black exploitation genre, like Slaughter and its sequel, Slaughter's Big Ripoff, as well as movies like The Slams and Black Gun. Um, he uh, teamed up with both Fred Williamson and Jim Kelly, the two other uh, black exploitation stars in the movie Three the Hard Way in 1974. And uh, they actually reteamed again in 1982 in a movie called One Down, Two to Go. Also, some non-genre stuff like uh, the Grasshopper and James Toback's Fingers, um, which were much more uh, uh, in the drama, dramatic uh, arena. Uh, and then just continuing, he just continued to act on into the '80s, '90s, and whatnot. Showed up in everything from The Running Man with Schwarzenegger to uh, uh, Keenan Ivory Wayne's "I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker." He got in Oliver Stone's "Any Given Sunday." Uh, Tim Burton had him in Mars Attacks. Spike Lee had him in He Got Game, and also did a documentary on him uh, called "Jim Brown, All American." So, yeah, just a, a really incredible career. Uh, also was very active uh, in the civil rights movement. So, yeah, an incredible career uh, as an actor, as an athlete, and as an uh, activist. So uh, also passing away, though, uh, was uh, Brown, one of Brown's co-stars, uh, actress Marlena Clark, who was his uh, one of his co-stars in the movie Slaughter. Um, uh, Clark uh, showed up in a number of genre films, especially in the 70s, but she was in... Uh, you know, horror movies like Night of the Cobra Woman, uh, Black Mamba. She was in, uh, of course, uh, Bill Gunn's uh, uh, critically acclaimed horror movie, Ganja and Hess. She also was in The uh, the Beast Must Die the, with Peter Cushing. Um, she w had a smaller role in uh, Enter the Dragon. Um, and she had a recurring part in Sanford and Son, where she played um, Lamont's uh, fiancé. So yes, uh, R.I.P. to Ms. Clark. We also lost uh, Helmut Berger, uh, the famous Austrian actor known for his many collaborations with director Lucino Visconti, uh, notably The Damned, uh, Ludwig, and Conversation Piece. Uh, you know, in the 70s, there, late 60s into the 70s, you know, he was um, a very well-known leading man in these uh, acclaimed uh, European films. Also was in uh, Vittorio De Sica's uh, The Garden of the Finzi Cantinis, uh, other movies included uh, uh, Salon Kitty, uh, he was in The Godfather Part Three, and uh, Dorian Gray, the 1970s version of Dorian Gray, which is also known as The Secret of Dorian Gray. Um, so yeah, uh, sorry to see him uh, go as well. Um, just reported today uh, was uh, the Cuban director, uh, Leon Echasso. I'm sorry, Leon Echasso. And... Uh, People may know him for uh, directing the uh, biopic Pinheiro uh, about the famous writer. Uh, he also did El Cantante, another biopic which starred uh, Mark Antony and Jennifer Lopez at the time that they were married. Um, he did the Wesley Snipes movie uh, Sugar Hill. Um, directed a number, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, episodes of uh, well-known TV series. And also such movies as uh, El Super, Bitter Sugar, and Paraiso. So, uh, tip of the hat to him. Uh, really shocked also to read today that Ray Stevenson passed away. I mean, he wasn't even that old, uh, just his late 50s. Um, you know, fans of the Marvel movies, of course, know him uh, from the uh, Thor films, in which he plays uh, Volstagg, 
Uh, and of course, before the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe even was a thing, he was at Marvel playing uh, the Punisher in the second Punisher film, uh, Punisher Warzone. Uh, he was also in the Divergent franchise. He was in G.I. Joe Retaliation. Um, he was in Paul W.S. Anderson's The Three Musketeers. Also showed up in some less genre-oriented fare, like uh, Billy Bob Thornton's Jane Mansfield's Car and uh, Kill the Irishman. Um, he was on the TV show Rome uh, that was on back in the day, as well as Vikings and Black Sails. And he will appear in the upcoming um, Star Wars uh, Disney Plus show Ahsoka. And he uh, got a whole new... Uh, um, uh, level of uh, popularity uh, with his role as the villain in the the hit film RRR. So, yeah, really uh, unfortunate to, to see him pass away at such a young age. But a great physical presence. He's just one of those guys who's just, you know, I mean, obviously his Volstag, yeah, he's a lot of makeup and hair going on there, but just just if you see him, you know, uh, stripped down to his, his presence in in uh, films without without the aid of uh, uh, makeup and whatnot. I mean, just a great a great look uh, and a great bearing. So yeah, definitely definitely sorry to see, hear that today. A uh, lesser known name that uh, moved on uh, was Ray Austin, who was a director. Uh, he was born in London and actually started out really in the the stunt industry. He was uh, Martin Landau's stunt double in North by Northwest, the famous ending there on uh, Mount Rushmore, as well as uh, he doubled for Albert Finney and Tom Jones, worked on a lot of stuff in, in, uh, in stunt work. Uh, st uh, movies like uh, Cleopatra with uh, Richard Burton and Liz Taylor, Operation Petticoat, Spartacus, um, and then kind of just moved on from uh, stunt work into uh, directing. Uh, worked on a lot of uh, TV shows. I mean, just ridiculous amount of uh, popular TV shows over the years. Um, stuff both in Britain and America. Uh, shows like uh, The Avengers, Wonder Woman, uh, Magnum P.I., uh, Highlander, Jag, just uh, tons of stuff like that. Also directed uh, a couple horror movies in the 70s, uh, House of the Living Dead and Virgin Witch, um, as well as the TV movie, the uh, reunion TV movie, The Return of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. So again, you're not not as a not necessarily a household name, but a you know a great filmography uh, that he had under his belt. And uh, last but not least, uh, just want to take a moment to uh, tip the hat to uh, Walt Olson. Walter Olson. Um, Walt ran a physical media label called Scorpion Releasing. Um, he and his brother, uh, Bill Olson, who just sadly passed away about six months ago, end of. Uh, 2022, Bill Bill ran a label of his own called Code Red, and the the brothers have been in distri distribution for I mean, forever now. And um, you know their labels uh, both uh, had a heavy influence of genre cinema, although uh, Walt liked to diversify a little bit more into uh, stuff like dramas and uh, other such uh, uh, less exploitation fare. But the, just the the films they put out on DVD and Blu-ray, I mean, there's just so many that are just so beloved uh, and so well-liked and that these guys had a, uh, played a huge part in making sure that these films weren't forgotten and had new life in, on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, you know, Walt would uh, distribute uh, through his self-distribute, but then as time went on, he also partnered with outfits like Ronin Flicks and Diabolic DVD and... Eventually, Kino Lorber, um, you know, made sure to get a lot of great extras uh, on these releases. Uh, just, you know, and, he, and I, I don't know his age, but I know that they really weren't, he wasn't that much older than Bill, who I think was only in his 50s when he passed away. So Walt, maybe his late 50s, early 60s, just, you know, sad because he had, um, not just because it follows so closely on uh, Bill's passing, but also just because, you know, he had uh, such great respect that he held within the uh, physical media industry. I mean, just just some of the movies, uh, real quick, that he 
he put out at one time or the other. Just this is just Scorpion releasing. This is not even Code Red, but this that Walt was involved with. I mean, you're talking big titles like Rollerball, and, uh, the original, and the Delta Force, and um, uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Killer Elite, and uh, the Lone Wolf McQuaid, which is another Chuck Norris film. Also, he, you know, like I said though, he he did these smaller, critically acclaimed movies like uh, One Potato, Two Potato, and he actually seemed to have a really interest in that film's director, Larry Pierce, who. As a director who also you know, captures my my fascination, um, you know, he uh, Walt also had put out more recently the Sporting Club, which is another Larry Pierce movie, and he was involved with the uh, Shout Factory release of Two Minute Warning, which is which is a great film that uh, Pierce directed, which is kind of like a foray into the disaster genre. Um, but uh, David and Lisa, the famous Frank Perry movie drama, uh, Walt helped uh, get that out. Uh, he the the uh, Mike Hammer film, uh, The Girl Hunters, in which Mickey Splane actually plays Mike Hammer. Uh, he did Grizzly and Day of the Animals, two of my uh, my most beloved 70s horror movies, and Don't Answer the Phone, which is, um, you know, uh, defines cinematic sleaze for me. And it's just a, uh, uh, terrific, uh, a terrific, terrific foray into uh, early 80s horror. And The Glass House, uh, which possibly my favorite definitely one of my top probably two or three favorite tv movies ever made and uh which i think i you know i've mentioned it in previous episodes is a huge influence on the what will be the uh, visualization of the last frankenstein sequel so these are just and this is just like i said a small taste of uh the stuff he's put out over the years i mean i've got tons of scorpion titles and so you know yeah uh, sad to see both brothers now have moved on um but they definitely left their mark in the industry and um definitely uh did a lot to keep uh films th- these films in the public conscious in the in the conscious of the uh physical media audience another one too a different story a different story that's one definitely shout out to with um Perry King and Meg Foster which I think like I might be misremembering now but I think like there was a lot of trouble with the elements for that movie and I think especially to find the, the longer cut and cuz I think he mentioned it that he was going to put that movie out a significant time before it was able to finally get released. And I think it was because of element issues, but um, that's when I, I watched, uh, I don't know, like a year, year and a half ago and uh, really enjoyed, uh, especially as a big Perry King fan. So again, yeah, shout out to, to Walt for uh, what he, what he's done. Um, in terms of announcements for stuff coming to physical media, uh, one that's definitely got me excited is the VCI, um, has stated on their Facebook page that they will be putting out the four 1940s Dick Tracy movies made by RKL Radio Pictures on Blu-ray. Now, these had been previously released on them by DVD as well as many other labels because I think the movies themselves are public, fell into the public domain. I know that there was like numerous VHS copies of these movies um, from different outfits. So, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I'd see them. Um, but just to kind of give a quick, uh, a brief synopsis of where where these fit into like Dick Tracy history. So the comic strip by Chester Gould uh, dawned in 1931. And the first uh, screen adaptation was a series of four film serials, you know, the old cliffhanger serials made by Republic Pictures. Uh, the first of these coming out in 1937, just simply titled Dick Tracy. Um, it was followed in uh, 1938 by Dick Tracy Returns, 1939 by Dick Tracy's G-Men, and finally 1941 by Dick Tracy versus Crime Inc. And in all four of these, the the role of our our, our famed uh, crime fighter was played by an actor named Ralph Bird, who this kind of became his 
definitive role. This is what he's really known for outside of this. He's just working in a lot of mostly B films. And many consider him the definitive on-screen Dick Tracy. Um, worth noting that the uh, third of these movies, uh, these film serials, Dick Tracy's G-Men, uh, the leading lady in that is an actress named Phyllis Isley, uh, who would later change her name to Jennifer Jones and become the Academy Award-winning star of such movies as The Song of Bernadette and Beat the Devil and The Towering Inferno and Mary David O. Selznick uh, after her uh, marriage to actor Robert Walker. But yeah, she's in the, the third one. So uh, when it came time to do um, feature films, um, it was RKO, Radio Pictures, though, that, that got these, uh, that was able to put these out. And they started with the first one, Dick Tracy, again, just simply titled that, sometimes also known as Dick Tracy Detective, but the on-screen title I've seen is always Dick Tracy. And that came out in 1945, uh, followed by Dick Tracy versus Cue Ball the following year. Now, these, uh, these first two starred an actor named Morgan Conway um, as uh, Dick Tracy. And, you know, he's a... Uh, definitely very suited to the role, and there are those who actually think he's the definitive uh, Dick Tracy, but Bird, you know, having played him more often is kind of, I think, the one who sometimes gets a little bit more associated with the role. Um, but these two films, after they, after the second film, Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball, uh, exhibitors were, like, telling RKO, we really want Ralph Bird back. Um, and so for the final two entries, uh, Dick Tracy's Dilemma and Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, both of which came out in '47. Uh, Bird came back to play the role. And Conway's film career really pretty much just ended shortly after that. He had like one more movie come out in 1946 and um, pretty much left left it behind. He he definitely bemoaned the fact that he kind of was typecast in, in the role of Dick Tracy. He felt that people just kind of associated with him with that role instead of looking at him uh, for his potential as an individual. But um, those were the four feature films. And... Um, Going forward from that, there was a live-action TV series in the 50s uh, with Bird uh, once again, Ralph Bird once again playing the role. Unfortunately, uh, Bird died uh, very young uh, in 1952. He was only 43 years old, so that kind of put an end to uh, the live-action show. And there was a cartoon show in the 60s, and of course Warren Beatty's uh, amazing film that came out in 1990, which I'm a big fan of. So VCI has access to the original negatives for these titles, which is uh, fantastic, and... Um, yeah, really looking forward to them uh, getting the HD love. I've seen all four of these. Um, saw them in kind of a weird order. My dad uh, went to a garage show when I was a kid, and he uh, picked up the VHS of the second one, Dick Tracy versus Cue Ball. And um, it was put out, I remember, by United American Video Corporation, which was one of the worst VHS labels ever, if you ever remember that one. Really pretty crappy quality. Um, it was like always like in the EP mode. But, uh, you know, watched the film, really enjoyed it. Um, and so I remember when I was a little older, uh, I think it was at Media Play. There used to be a, um, a store nearby called Media Play, which I don't know. I don't know how much of a chain that was, so how many people listening to this are familiar with it. But, you know, I had, like, books and movies and uh, music. And I remember going there and picking up the Good Times, the great, the great VHS label, Good Times. They had a double-feature VHS tape of the final two movies, uh, Dick Tracy's Dilemma and Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome. And, um, you know, Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, the fourth in the series, is probably the... Uh, the one that's best known and uh, that's most liked uh, primarily because I'm sure uh, the villain in that, Gruesome, is played by Boris Karloff. And um, so that gives it a whole another, uh, another level of appreciation. And it wasn't until years later that I finally got around to seeing the very first film, Dick Tracy. Um, I, I picked up it at a dollar store, actually, the dollar DVD. Um, eventually upgraded to the, uh, the Roan Classics DVD set of all four, 
Um, but yeah, to get these in high def will definitely be a treat. They're fun films. You know, they're all a little over an hour. I mean, you could conceivably just, you know, pick a Saturday night after, after an early dinner and just watch all four in a row. Uh, you know, they're breezy. They're, they have a good pace. Um, they have like the very, uh, uh, you know, they're very aware of their comic, comic strip origins, you know, with villains like, um, split face and the claw and of course gruesome and characters like uh, vitamin Flitheart, and they even have a uh, one movie has a character named dr a tomic and uh, you know familiar familiar faces to dick tracy fans like uh, pat Patton, uh, dick tracy's right hand man played by uh, lyle latell in all four movies and the kid is in there and the, his chief and uh tess trueheart played by uh, a few different actresses um and jeffries plays her in the first two uh, Kate Christopher does a one-off in Dick Tracy's Dilemma, and then in the final film, Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, it's actually uh, Universal Pictures' Scream Queen and Gwyn, who horror fans know from movies like House of Frankenstein and The Black Cat, and who is also the grandmother of uh, contemporary uh, movie star Chris Pine. So yeah, definitely definitely something to check out, even if you're not really into um, you know, uh, crime or detective movies. Even if you're just, an, if you, even if you're just like a, a fan of like horror movies, I think you would see... Uh, a connection uh, to the Dick Tracy movies, and not just because of Karloff being in the last one, but they def, you know, they definitely have because of that kind of almost grotesque like uh, comic book origin. Um, there definitely is a, a tinge of the uh, the horror genre to them that you could see. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend checking those out when they finally hit. So let's move on to the movie of the week last night. For the first time ever, I checked out from 1947, directed by Otto Preminger. Daisy Kenyon, starring Joan Crawford. So Crawford plays the titular character, Daisy Kenyon, who is a very independent, very self-supported artist for hire. And uh, she finds herself, uh, unfortunately, torn between two men in her life. One is uh, Dan O'Mara, a successful lawyer, played by Danny Andrews, um, who unfortunately, uh, for Daisy, is married. Uh, married with two teenage daughters and a partner in a law firm uh, which with his father-in-law. And their relationship is one of constant uh, dissatisfaction on the part uh, of Daisy because he keeps promising her, of course, that he's going to eventually leave his wife and uh, marry her. And she's just, as the relationship progresses, is coming to to the point where she's starting to realize this is never going to happen. This is always just going to be what it is. And um, compounding matters is the fact that he's very busy, like just outside of um, their own relationship and the time that that requires of her seeing him out, you know, when he has spare time, it's just that he's, a, he's constantly traveling for his job. He's got his, his kids and wife. And so even the relationship they do have, even if it never progresses beyond what it is, it isn't satisfying enough. There just isn't much, uh, isn't enough there of him to, uh, for her to have. Um, and the other man she finds her um, self pull towards um, is a guy named Peter Lapham, played by Henry Fonda. He's a, uh, a veteran uh, returning from World War II. Uh, he had served over there and then had stayed, also served there for the occupation and uh, suffering, you know, what, from what we now call uh, PTSD. But, um, also making that situation worse for him is that uh, years prior, his wife had, had died. Um, and so as the film uh, moves on and uh, you know, 
Daisy finds herself kind of uh, in turmoil about what to do about a relationship with Dana, Dan O'Mara, Dana Andrews, and um, you know Peter Lapham, Henry Fonda uh, coming into her life. Um, Fonda's character basically makes a proposal, literally uh, a marriage proposal, but also a uh, a proposal that you know let's get together, let's let's wed each other, and you know I understand that uh, you know you have these feelings for this other man. But I also know that he's not giving you what you want. And I, on the other hand, uh, am feeling you know disconnected from life, uh, detached. I feel like everything around me is dead. And uh, But you, you give life to me. You bring life back to me. So if we were to get married, we would meet each, other need, each other's needs, uh, fill these voids that we have. And in time from this, love may come. Uh, you know, he feels that he already loves her, but he also feels that maybe in time she'll love him. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, he's he's not like, you know, kidding himself or fooling himself. Um, Henry Fonda's character. He uh, uh, he knows that this uh, might never de- de- develop into the kind of feelings he'd want from a wife, but he's willing to give it a shot. As Joan Crawford, though, begins to move forward with this relationship with uh, Fonda, though, it's when uh, Dana Andrews, his character, uh, begins to kind of open up to something inside him he wasn't aware of. Um, his his legal work is mostly on behalf of you know big businesses, corporations, uh, kind of uh, soulless ventures, and he finds himself asked to get involved with the case of a Japanese World War II veteran, a veteran of the American Army uh, of Japanese ancestry, who has been dispossessed of his land um, and treated poorly and. As uh, Danny Andrews becomes involved with this case, uh, much to the chagrin of his uh, father-in-law, who doesn't know why he's bothering with such a thing, um, he begins to kind of find uh, an awakening in himself of what he always wanted to be, his realizing his potential as a human being, something which he feels that uh, Joan Crawford had, had kind of wanted to bring about in him and wanted to see in him. Um, and this isn't a spoiler. I mean, it's kind of covered in... It's right on the plot summary, I think on the black back of the, the Blu-ray that I watched, um, is that Dana Andrews's wife, uh, Lucille O'Mara, played by Ruth Warwick uh, from uh, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, she becomes aware of the relationship that Dana Andrews is having and wants a divorce, but not just wants a... Uh, she doesn't just want a divorce and move on and start a, a fresh life. She wants a divorce in which... Uh, Crawford is named as as uh, having been part of this uh, messy affair, and which would of course uh, bring you know, uh, you know supposedly embarrassment and shame to to Crawford. Um, you know, Ruth Warwick's character, Dana, uh, Dana Andrews' wife, feels kind of overwhelmed by her domestic situation, and not which you might be thinking, well, of course, her husband's having an affair. But no, what I'm referring to is, you know, uh, because Dana Andrews is so busy, because he's constantly traveling and and without perhaps her knowledge early on, seeing Joan Crawford and constantly away from home, she feels overwhelmed by the the burden of uh, to her of raising the kids by herself and feels that he just kind of stops in to... Uh, to spoil them, and you know that he—it's easy for him to come in and be there, be their hero, and be their uh, lovable dad because he's there so little. While she has to deal with the kind of day-to-day task of of developing them and raising them, and the tension for her is unfortunately uh, mounting and and uh, turning into uh, bad behavior on her part, where she becomes starts to become kind of physically abusive towards her daughters. Uh, 
so you know you have all this it's a, it's a lot of turmoil in this movie <laughs> a lot of turmoil going on uh, in this film but at the center of it is is Joan Crawford as Stacy Kenyon is uh, Joan Crawford as a you know, an independent woman who must decide how is she going to handle this situation? Is she going to, you know, move on and try out this new life with Henry Fonda? Is she going to, um, you know, continue to pursue a relationship with a married man, maybe in the hopes that he will, you know, become available or just accept it as it is? Or will she leave both men behind? Uh, the film's effectiveness really ranges depending on the section of the film you're in. And much more, I mean, obviously every film has like, oh, that's my favorite scene, and oh, in the middle it's a little weak, or oh, I love that ending. You know, obviously films have a variety of quality depending on where you're at in this film. But this film really stood out in terms of like, depending on where you, what characters you're with, what what segment of the film you're in, um, really determined about how well how well the film came across the best parts of the film the scene the scenes that really hit home uh were the a lot of the scenes between crawford and andrews you know and obviously you know you fonda is the actor of the, of the two males in this film him and andrews fonda is the one that generally regarded as you know the better actor but it's those in, interactions between crawford and andrews which come across really grounded naturalistic realistic even just like the opening uh scene where he dan andrews goes to visit her at her apartment where she also works. Um, just setting in a very realistic way the tone of their, and the nature of their relationship. You know, you have these two people who have this strong attraction for each other, uh, have these feelings for each other, and are trying to make that work as best they can within uh, an extremely uh, difficult and precarious uh, situation, which is that He's married, and also he has very little time. And the film's also very realistic in how it how it portrays the effect of this type of relationship on Joan Crawford's character, on Daisy Kenyon. You know, she you know, she's torn apart by it because she has this this love for someone who just can't give himself fully to her. And you know, it's that constant, you know, seesaw of like, you know, do I just break away and leave him behind and I'm done with this? Or do I just, you know, try to make the best of it because I do have these feelings for him. And, it, you know, she makes uh, references to the film to how it's just just it's consuming and uh, at the same time destructive nature. It's just even interfering with her ability just to do her, her work, her job. Um, and likewise, you know, Andrew's, Andrew's character, just the degree to which he's busy, like constantly working and then, you know, trying to fit in a little bit of time with his daughters and then going over to see Joan Crawford. He's... He, his character is just used to it. He, this is just the way his life is, so he's able to do it with essentially ease, but at the same time, you can see how all-consuming, uh, you know, the different the different compartments of his life have become to the point where he himself almost doesn't exist, right? Like he's either doing this corporate uh, legal work for with his father-in-law, um, which isn't very uh, satisfying to him, or he's you know spending time with Daisy, who he can't have fully, um, or he's at home with his wife, who there's all this tension between them because of the because she feels overwhelmed by raising the children, and because he's un you know he, he's very unhappy with how she, she treats them at times. Yet of course he's not really there to to make the situation better. Um, but I mean he's just so 
so used to it. He, this is just what he's been doing for so long that it's kind of like he doesn't even think about it. And it's really not until, you know, this, this case comes up involving this Japanese-American war veteran that, you know, he starts to get a, a new level of self-awareness. And I found that all that very effective, very realistic. Um, I think that it's very mature in the way they handled it. Um, you know, one of the reviews, I forget if it was a contemporary review or a later one, spoke of the sophisticated dialogue in the film. And I will say that, like, you know, they, within the, within the um, parameters allowed by censors at the time, they are very, you know, adult in dealing with this relationship between, between Andrews and uh, Crawford. But the flip side of that is the stuff with Crawford and Fonda, I just, you know, in, I guess, you know, there's, so I watched the Kino Lorber Blu-ray of this movie, which has, uh, you know, making of on it and commentary track. I think stuff ported over from the original Fox DVD release. This was a Fox movie. But apparently, uh, you know, Crawford in real life was very smitten with Fonda and uh, tried to, uh, you know, make it happen with him. <laughs> but on screen, just, I don't, the chemistry's not there. I just don't find their relationship believable. Um, and, you know, part of that, there, there is an intention, I'm sure, to the idea of he's different in some ways than Dana Andrews' character. Henry Fine's character is different, and therefore um, he might be a little bit uh, unexpected in terms of the kind of person she would have a relationship with. But so, you know, there, there might be an aspect of that which is meant to be there, but what comes ends up coming across, coming through the film is just, you know, this person, uh, Henry Fonda, who just, I, I just can't imagine him ever really being with this woman. Um, and, and kind of making matters worse is that some of the stuff with Fonda, it's kind of contrived and, and, and uh, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, cheesy. I mean, even the whole idea of them getting married, like, you know, that's a, there's nothing wrong with that idea of like him saying, oh, you might not feel about me quite the way I feel about you, but you have an attraction to me. I love you. We can meet each other's needs. Let's give it a shot. That, that I don't have a problem with, but it happens really quickly, like kind of stretching uh, credulity quickly that he, you know, from him going from meeting her to feeling basically falling head over heels and then from there to just wanting to marry her. And then some of his interactions with her are just, you know, it's kind of like, a, come on, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, it's like almost, almost to the point of like laughably bad. There's a scene where he's, uh, you know, basically expressing his feelings towards her and he kind of like talking about her ear and kind of like nibbling on her or, or it just, it just felt um, in that moment ridiculous. So you have those those kind of things happening in the film where you have those kind of problems arise where a moment seems uh, uh, to stretch your uh, ability to suspend disbelief or it just seems, uh, you know, a bit much from an emotional point of view, a bit, uh, a bit like I said, cheesy. And you add layer that on top of a character who you just don't see fitting in with with our our main protagonist of these three, and it just makes those scenes uh, fall short, uh, you know, especially in contrast to to the uh, the footage the scenes between Andrews and Crawford because they you know it's it's a lot of going back and forth. It's you know it's it's not like a film just spends like you know forty five minutes with the Crawford Andrews and forty five minutes with Crawford Fonda. It's kind of it's you know it's constantly moving back and forth between these two these two relationships. And so it just kind of emphasizes the uh, 
the difference, the, the stark difference in terms of effectiveness of, of portraying those two relationships. You know, I just Fonda's, I mean, no, and obviously no disrespect to Henry Fonda by all means, but this is just not a role for him. And part of the problem is, of course, the character, because it doesn't matter who plays this part, you're still going to have the issues of just, for example, you know, the the, the whirlwind courtship and, and things of that nature. So some of that's embedded into the character, but, you know, that that aside, this is not someone who he should be playing. Definitely not opposite Joan Crawford. I mean, she's a full Mildred Pierce mode, you know, the the, the character, uh, the title character of the movie Mildred Pierce, um, which won Crawford her Best Actress Academy Award. It's it's very much uh, the, the role she's playing in Daisy Kenyon is, you know, that, again, that very strong, independent uh, woman. And I don't know, it's just... Just even visually, her and Fonda don't mesh well. It's just, it's just really, you know, her, she and Dana Andrews uh, look like they come from the same arena. You know, um, he's the the driven uh, lawyer. Uh, she's the, you know, like I said, the uh, the the self made woman in business. And um, and again, some of that's intentional. That Fonda's a more laid back character. That he has a different way of kind of viewing life. But it's, it's just, it just seems so beyond what you think uh, the Daisy Canyon character would be interested in and so beyond what you think would be the type of person who would attract Joan Crawford in this kind of definitive Joan Crawford role that it just, like I said, it just makes those kind of scenes uh, all the weaker. The film also has a tendency to kind of compartmentalize the character's behavior. It's instead of kind of presenting the characters a way where all their, all of what makes them who they are are shown in a fluid, homogenous uh, nature, it's kind of like, well, we want to have this moment to show that uh, Henry Fonda suffers from PTSD, so he'll have a nightmare and wake up. Or even with Dana Andrews' character at times, it's like, uh, we want to focus on that part of him which is idealistic, which is basically good buried way down deep. So we'll have this scene where you know, he's talking to his father-in-law about the importance of uh, defending this uh, Japanese-American veteran. But these scenes, they seem to serve the purpose of making sure the audience is aware of these character traits of these people. Like, it's like they're in the film because the director and the writers are like, okay, we need to remind uh, the audience that Dana Andrews has this idealistic part kind of growing within him. We need to remind the audience about how Henry Fonda has been affected by the war. So it's like this scene is inserted on behalf of this character or that character to uh, communicate to the audience that they have this character trait, that they have this part of them. Yet, as you see the character throughout the rest of the film, it never quite fully, that, that character trait never quite fully weaves itself into their other scenes or, or flows into who their character is as a whole, um, which kind of makes for a little bit of a disjointed relationship that you have as you watch the movie with these characters because it's like oh yeah i've been i've watched this guy for like a, an hour and 15 minutes or whatever and he is this person and then we get the scene inserted to remind us of this other part of him and it just kind of like really stands out like oh this is this is to remind me that uh he's been affected by the war and we find has been affected by the war um won't see much of this as much of this kind of uh part of him elsewhere in the movie a little bit but um this is the part that's supposed to really remind me of uh uh you know how how the combat affected him, and again, like Andrews has that kind of that same thing happening uh, with Andrews' character. I think that Crawford's character is the most consistently portrayed, uh, consistently uh, created uh, throughout the film. Interestingly, though, 
she's kind of the character you get to know the least. Like you very much, you very well know how she feels and what she's going through and what she's thinking. But in terms of a complete 200% portrait of the character, like there's not even a lot of like backstory on her character uh, other than that, you know, she's basically been supporting herself her whole life. She's been doing this artwork for a while, uh, living by herself. But compared to like how much you get into Henry Fonda's backstory about, you know, what he used to do in the war and his marriage and all that stuff, or in terms of Dana Andrews, that's what his backstory, but just he has such a, um, uh, such a multifaceted life in terms of just, you know, he's got the legal work for the, you know, for his father-in-law and the, the, the idealistic legal work and then his, all the family dynamics. There's a lot going on. So you kind of, you can kind of see uh, a clear picture of Dana Andrews through all these different, different aspects of his life. Whereas Crawford's character is just really, it's kind of in the now that you get, you get to know her through being with her in the moment, in the now, seeing how she's dealing with the situation of the film. Um, rather than kind of getting into discussions about uh, how she became the person that she is through events in her life, um, which I guess is kind of interesting. You know, it's an interesting way of kind of now that I say that of portraying these three characters because it's the three. You know, there's I mean, there's a, obviously a lot of supporting characters in the films, but it's an interesting thing to look at this as a three p- character piece, and you get to know Joan Crawford through her her mind and her emotions. Essentially, you get to know Henry Fonda more or less through his story, his history, his personal life, what happened to the death of his wife, his time in the military. And Andrews, it's you get to know his character um, basically through not so much uh, not so much living inside his mind and emotions the way you do with Joan Crawford, but by just seeing him respond um, to everything that's going on in his life, seeing him respond to the chance to do something more with his legal work, seeing him respond to... Um, Daisy, Kenya, and Joan Crawford's relationship with Henry Fonda, seeing him respond to what's going on in his home. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, now that I say that, it's actually kind of, it's, it's an interesting approach. Um, yeah, you, you, so you take three characters, and one, you take the uh, emotional, uh, the, the emotional mental approach, one, you take the narrative approach, Henry Fonda, and one, you take kind of like the action approach. What are his actions? So you're living in the mind of one person, uh, you're living the actions of another person, and you're living in the history of a, a third person. Well, it's kind of interesting that I, I talk, I just talked my way through that. It's okay, I'm good now. I, 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 I kind of respect that. <laughs> um, I think the film does kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's never boring. It's again, it falls into that category of you're not going to be bored watching this movie, but at the same time, um, it does kind of get a little bogged down uh, in uh, a courtroom subplot um, as. Uh, as uh, Dana Andrews' wife's uh, uh, divorce-based actions become more aggressive, shall we say, uh, I think that kind of got things a little bit bogged down um, in the in the in the last half of the film. It's again, it's it's uneven film, um, but it definitely has its its worthwhile qualities. And you know, Preminger, Otto Preminger, the director. Who uh, this was the third of four films he directed Dana Andrews in. Uh, they had pre and the others were film noirs or films noir, whichever is the correct thing there. Uh, they had first teamed up on Laura, the classic film noir with Gene Tierney, great movie, definitely recommend it. They followed that up with uh, Fallen Angel, co-starring Alice Faye, and then after um, Daisy Kenyon, they did um, Where the Sidewalk Ends, which was also had Tierney, Gene Tierney again. But Preminger was 
unafraid to push boundaries for his times. I mean, he, you know, if you look at his, the work, hit the work he did, he did the comedy, the moon is blue, uh, which came out in 53, which, um, he, he released it without the production code seal of approval. He refused to uh, change some words in it, uh, that some people considered offensive because it was kind of a, had some sexual, uh, context to the humor. Um, the man with the golden arm, the Frank Sinatra movie, which dealt with, uh, heroin addiction. Um, some of the language and anatomy of a murder was considered controversial. And then of course, 19, 60, he released uh, Exodus, uh, written by the blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, and he gave Trumbo on-screen credit for the film, the same year that Kirk Douglas did likewise for Spartacus, which was a key moment in helping to finally break the uh, the, the blacklist uh, brought about by the communist witch hunts. And so you look at um, Daisy Kenyon, and there are definitely some interesting uh, topics kind of touched upon throughout the film, like uh, child abuse, like the the day-to-day life of basically uh, having two relationships like Dana Andrews having to balance this marriage with uh, someone who's a girlfriend. Um, and even, uh, you know, PTSD, uh, you know, not that it's called by that in the movie, but it definitely deals with the uh, uh, after effects of war and not the first movie to do that. The best years of our lives obviously had covered that, um, which Dana Andrews was in and, and played someone suffering from, uh, the effects of war, but still to just, you know, to find all these different, um, things in this movie, it definitely, uh, makes for interesting viewing just to kind of watch, watch these topics being handled. I found the resolution, the ending to the film unsatisfying. Um, I think that, you know, again, I don't want to go into spoiler country here, but if you watch the movie, imagine it without like the last five, not even five, maybe three minutes. Uh, you know, when you watch it, go back and find the last scene time by the timeline. Go by the timeline and find the last scene shared between Dana Andrews and Joan Crawford. And imagine that after that scene, the film ends and Joan Crawford has no more scenes with any other actor. And to me, that's the ending it should have had. Um, and it seemed like it was kind of going there uh, for a little bit. Um I don't know, you know, maybe they felt that was the right ending. Maybe it was because they wanted a little bit more of a Hollywood-style ending. But I definitely didn't feel like the ending they went with, the choice she made in the end, was the choice that that character really would make. Um, but again, just a shout-out to Crawford. I mean, she does a great job of just conveying the, like, the mental stress of basically trying to make a living. And you got this guy you're crazy about, but he won't ever leave his wife. and He's married, and... You got this other guy who wants to be with you, but you, you know, uh, you know, you still have these feelings for the first guy. It's just, just the kind, and they, and they both want to answer. As, you know, as the film progresses, they, you know, obviously, things reach, things reach a point, things reach a head where they want to know, okay, who are you going to be with? And and it just becomes like mentally overwhelming for her, and it's just very, very, a very good depression depiction of just stress <laughs> just someone under a lot of stress um i love crawford you know and this this is you know this is her element this is this is totally uh where where she excels at and you know she actually wanted to make this movie the movie is based on a novel of the same name uh which came out in 1945 by an authoress named elizabeth janeway and um crawford had one to make this movie from the jump to adapt it and then found out that Fox had already gotten the rights to the movie. Um, interestingly, so one of the one of the kind of concerns, I guess, that people and critics and whoever had about Crawford taking on this role is they felt she was too old. Because I guess in the book, you know, Joe Crawford at this time was like 42, I think. 
right around there. And in the book, uh, the character is 32. And so there's even like attention, I guess, to the lighting of the movie to kind of just disguise rage. And, uh, you know, it's a constant thing you uh, I've seen in terms of like the featurettes in the Blu-ray and some of the reading I did about the movie. That, you know, uh, she's too old for the role, but she's still good. And it's like, I totally disagree with that. I think she is absolutely the right age for this character. It's completely believable um, to see her in this situation. The, the age never even factors into it. You never think um, in terms of like, oh, she's too old to play this role or she, she's the right age. This is a, a completely believable situation that I could see someone like this in this point in her life, age-wise, career-wise, finding herself. And never for a moment did that thought even cross my mind. It's kind of, it's just weird that they kept coming back to that. Like, And, and when watching the movie, you know, uh, and I don't, mean this to come across bad or anything i mean she she seemed like someone in her early 40s like i you know i if i when i heard what her age was making this movie i wasn't like oh i thought she was younger or older no that's just what she came across right a link and it was completely believable and it's interesting because the first person they would consider for this film was gene tierney you know which again would reunited her with dana andrews and otto preminger from laura um and when I heard that she was the first choice immediately, and this was before I had heard the uh, criticisms about Crawford's age, I was like, wow, she would have been too young. Like in Laura, the age difference between her and Dana Andrews worked. You can, you were aware that she was younger because she's like 10 years younger than Dana Andrews. Jean Tierney is. Um, you were aware of, you know, cognizant of an age difference, but it felt natural to that storyline. The, uh, the world where detective uh, obsessed and in love with a seemingly uh, murdered, uh, a beautiful uh, young businesswoman. But in, in this kind of, in this film where you have to have in the character of Daisy Kenyon, you have to believe that they can grasp the nature of the situation they're in, that they can understand the ramifications of what if, what if Dana Andrews does leave his wife for me? What if he does divorce her? How is that going to affect his daughters? How is that going to affect their upbringing? Um, how is you know how is that going to affect my future if he doesn't leave her, but he still wants to be with me? You know, these are kind of things that Crawford, in playing the character, you believe that she understands and is aware and cognizant of the ramifications the different choices they make about the relationship her and Andrew's relationship could have on themselves and on other people. And uh, part of that comes with, you know, just the history that Crawford brings to this performance of having played these types of characters before, of having in her own personal life lived this kind of life. There are definitely similarities between um, you know, Joe Crawford's own life that they talk about in the making of and her relationships with men and what you see in Daisy Kenyon. And, you have to see in Daisy Kenny, you have to see in Joe Crawford's performance, the maturity to understand uh, understand these things. And I'm not saying that Jean Tierney didn't, I mean, I, I, I love Jean Tierney. I'm not saying that she can't, uh, couldn't bring to bear what she, what, what was ever was inside her. But I think just because, because of the age difference between her and Dana Andrews, and it's much more, it's much more stark. Um, and because she just, you know, has a, a much more youthful quality to her than than Crawford did, that I think it would be harder to sell some of that. That it would be harder to sell kind of like the idea that Gene Tierney as Daisy Kenyon has the life experiences to understand where all these different roads they could take could lead to uh, versus Joan Crawford. Um, 
but I do love Gene Terry. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that was the right, that would not have been the right choice. And I, second choice actually was Jennifer Jones uh, that they considered, um, which, yeah, that just, that would not have worked. So it's like, nah, not, not even a chance. I, I can't even imagine that. This is a total Crawford Crawford movie. Now, Fonda and Andrews, uh, Dana and Andrews, they didn't really want to be in this movie, apparently. Um, but it was a contractual obligation for them both. Um, this movie, like I said, came out in 47. Uh, and Fonda, this was right, he was about to go on a hiatus from uh, movie acting, actually. Um, because after this movie, he really only had one starring movie role, really, before he, he took a break from from appearing on the big screen. Um, his his next movie after this was a film called On Our Merry Way, but that was like an anthology film with you know multiple storylines that he was in one of them. Then came John Ford's Fort Apache, uh, which was you know he definitely was the lead of that. A great great f- uh, my f- my personal favorite of John Ford's three cavalry movies. And then 1949, he had a cameo appearance in a movie called Jigsaw, which some other um, uh, some other well-known actors had cameos in, and then that was it uh, until 1955. And in, in the meantime, you know, he did he did show up in some uh, a couple TV episodes and stuff. But he was doing a lot of uh, work on the stage, uh, famously playing the title role in the play Mr. Roberts. And his performance of that on the stage actually won him a Tony Award uh, in uh, 1948. And then he was in uh, the King Mutiny Court Martial on the stage. Uh, did a play called Point of No Return. And yeah, 1955 was when he came back to the big screen to star in the. Uh, film adaptation of Mr. Roberts, uh, and of course, you know, was active until until his death. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. It, I have, I take issue with his appearance in this film, but apparently, so did he. <laughs> um, important to note that this film often gets kind of in a very general way lumped in with films noir. Uh, it's not in terms of definitely in terms of the narrative by by no means, but the reason it kind of gets that label. In fact, when it was released on DVD by Fox, they put it out as part of their film noir uh, collection. Is it, it's it's cinematography the way it's shot? It definitely echoes film noir. Um, you know, it's heavy use of shadows and um, you know contrast. Uh, of course, the the presence of Preminger as the director and Andrews in the Andrews in the movie and, and Crawford after Mildred Pierce, which has its own film noir elements, uh, definitely uh, you know kind of uh, work to heighten uh, heighten that uh, noir reputation. This movie has kind of somewhat attained, um, and and uh, and its willingness to deal with some darker darker issues, like I mentioned, like PTSD, like child abuse. Um, that that also you know takes it into kind of like the darker territory that you're familiar with in, in film noir. So I would call it a dramatic noir. You know, it d- definitely if you're going into it, because I you know my first hearing of this film was I always thought it was a film noir until I actually dug more into it before I ever saw it and watched the trailer and read up about it. If you're going into it expecting like you know the killers or um, you know something of that ilk, uh, it's not that. But it definitely has kind of. Uh, the aesthetic uh, similar and, and the tone similar to the film noir genre. Shout out, by the way, to uh, co-star Martha Stewart, no relation to the Martha Stewart of our time. Uh, she plays Mary, Mary Angelus, who is uh, a friend of Daisy Kenyon, Joan Crawford's character, and is the model she uses a lot for her artwork. She's that classic uh, best friend, uh, Girl Friday, uh, Eve Arden-esque kind of uh, character in the film. And she she really acquits herself quite nicely in that role. I actually 
just passed away in 2021 at age of 98. Um, probably best known for uh, playing the murder victim in the uh, classic Humphrey Bogart film noir, In a Lonely Place. So check this movie out for sure. Again, I don't think I'd go so far as to say, oh, that's a good movie. The, the flaws are a little too notable for that. And I really want to, yeah, I just watched the movie yesterday. I'd like to digest it some more, really in the context of Dana Andrews' character in like the last third of the film and, and some of the choices he makes um, at the expense of the relationship he has with uh, his children, perhaps. Um, and you know, I'm going to kind of get some more time to kind of uh, stew on that and, and get back to you. Maybe with some more Daisy Kenyon thoughts next next episode. But so like I said, it's, it's definitely got its... It has issues which are, are too... Uh, unavoidable to say. Oh, that's a, that's a good film. That's a good film. No, it's it's a interesting but flawed film. Worth checking out for sure. Uh, pick up the Blu-ray from Keen Lover if you can. Uh, especially you know, this is a Fox film and Fox is owned by Disney now, so who knows how much longer they will able to keep some of those titles in print. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts about it. Real quick too, just to, something to check out when you're watching it. There's a scene at the store club, and. It was an opportunity for them to kind of fit in some real-life uh, celebrities. Uh, Dane Andrews' character being the successful lawyer, he encounters Walter Winchell there, actually, uh, and has a brief scene with him. Um, and in the, in the same scene, as kind of like an extra, I think at the bar, is uh, Damon Runyon. And uh, another person that he directly interacts with, Dane Andrews, is uh, a columnist who was well-known at the time named Leonard Lyons. And then at the actual, at the bar in the store club, uh, you can't see him, you only see him in profile, uh, is John Garfield, uh, you know, the famous uh, two-time Academy Award-nominated actor who was at Fox around that time making uh, the classic movie Gentleman's Agreement. So just something to kind of keep an eye out for. Also uh, worth noting that, uh, and I think most people know this, uh, when they watch it, you know, the, the, the older daughter, uh, Dana Andrews' older daughter, is played by Peggy Ann Garner. And this was shortly after she won a special Oscar for her performance in The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. But yeah, uh, that's Daisy Kenyon. Um, a an interesting film, but a flawed one. Uh, significantly flawed, but still uh, still a worthwhile view. Uh, yeah, I want to kind of just I want to I want to spend some more time stewing on it. It's not enough time. Just uh, <laughs> it was it? Yeah, it was like twenty four hours ago I finished it. Um, so I want to kind of give some more thoughts to it. But it's it's flaws are too it's flaws are too noteworthy to say it's good. But its strengths and the realism it projects in certain parts and uh, the topics it's willing to address, it, it makes it too interesting to basically be ignored. Um, so it's definitely, what you have then is a film, it's just, it's worth watching just for what it has in it. Um, even if, even if it doesn't, uh, it doesn't come together uh, and coalesce uh, to become a, a masterpiece or a classic or a really good film. There's enough going on to make the viewing worth your while. Um, so I think that'll wrap it up, though, for this week's episode of Carpet City Cinema. Uh, please continue to uh, share news on this podcast. Uh, spread the word. Give us a like on uh, Facebook. Uh, also, all the videos we're posting up to YouTube. And if you have any questions or anything you want to hear about or any, uh, any commentary on some of the movies we've watched or anything, just email us at carpetcitycinema, that's one word, at gila-film.com. That's G-I-L-A. Dash F-I-L-M dot com. 
And I would love to hear from you all. And so thank you very much for tuning in. And we will be back next week, possibly with some more Daisy Kenyon thoughts. Who knows? All right. Thanks a lot. and Take care.